Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with the truly bizarre cult classic, The Mafu Cage, from 1978. It's Praising Kane. I'm your esteemed host and guy, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is my own bad romance, Doug Tilly. Doug, how's life right now? Liam, things are terrific. Things are actually going very well for me right now, and I uh, I always am of the opinion that when things are going well for me, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop because sure, I have yeah. a negative view on uh, on life as a whole, but things are perfectly okay. We're, we're Moving into the end of the year at the time that this episode is being released, uh, around this time I'm going to be uh, going back to visit my family in Newfoundland uh, pretty soon, uh, which I haven't done in a couple of years since well before the beginning of the pandemic. So yeah, things things are exciting, and not, you know, on top of that, we're talking about a movie that is very strange, very unique, and for the first time, something special is happening on Praising Kane. Maybe you can talk about it. Well, uh, we have our first guest on Praising Kane. Uh, it's significant not just for that reason, Doug, but today is a kind of reunion because we're joined by an incredibly talented film programmer, one of the editors and visionaries at Cinepunks, but most importantly, Doug, it's one of our former co-hosts from the Flight Stuff era. It's Adriana Gober. Hi, Adriana. How are you doing? Hi, William. I'm doing great. And... Uh... I got to say, it was very flattering to hear you refer to me as a visionary of Cinepunks, considering I had absolutely nothing to do with the development of the Cinepunks apparatus. I just occasionally edit articles and Stop. get frustrated that nobody Stop. follows the style guide. <laughs> <laughs> that I can I can confirm. But no, I think that's true. Uh, you and Doug uh, and a few other people behind the scenes, including people like Sharky, um, you know, there's a certain group of people who are not just folks who participate, but they're folks who are part of uh, when I'm thinking about, like, what should we do next or how should we handle this or what is our response to this or what can we do differently this time? You're on the Council of Elders. That's just how it is. And that's, you know, so people know that's no, no disrespect to some of our more casual participants who know that I love them very, very deeply. But not everybody gets the hit up when it's like, hey, what do you think about this? And I'm sending over, I don't know a new logo design or something. You're, you're part of that council, and I need you to wear that responsibility. Well, I really appreciate that, Liam. And, uh, you know, I really I really respect you and your, oh, your taste and, like, what you have to say about not only film, but also about, you know, politics and things like that. So, you know, you're it bringing, means a lot. You're bringing more sincerity to a show with me and Doug than – than we've ever had before, and it's really making me uncomfortable. I should be dunking on you, Mercilessly. I know, there really, that would, be, that would be much it's better. It's just, I don't have it in me. Liam, <laughs> I, I, Liam, I love it when Doug does it. I wanted to ask you but a quick question. But I can't question, do it. Adriana. No, no, before you ask her a quick question, Go ahead. how come you've never called me a visionary on any of our shows before? Because you always set the vibe of we're at we're mildly at odds, so I have yeah. never had the chance to. But, don't uh, you want to smooth that over with a compliment? Yeah, uh, Doug designed the website. I designed three websites in a row. In fact, yeah. you could make the case that I'm more of the creator of Cinepunks than you are. 
No, I mean, I mean, it certainly wouldn't exist without. Uh, that is very true. Your if web you be- development know-how, Doug. So. If you believe that the medium is the message, then Doug is technically the true mastermind behind. Spoken all. like a true Canadian, Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Adrian, I did want to ask you. You know, this is a show. I don't know if you knew this, but this is a show dedicated to actress Carol Kane. Did you know that? I, I did actually. Uh, what you know, I, I want to know, like. What is your feelings on Carol Kane? Now, uh, the audience doesn't know this. We know that you love the movie that we're going to be discussing today. That's why you're here today. Literally, you were very excited to talk about it, and we're excited to have the conversation with you. I'm wondering what you think of Carol Kane outside of this movie, The Mafu Cage, from 1978. Uh, how do you feel about her as an actress? What's your first memory of her? That sort of thing. Um, well, I love Carol Kane, but I was actually thinking about this before we started recording, and... I can't really pinpoint like when it was that I first encountered Carol Kane. I mean, I suppose it was in my childhood because she's in a lot of movies that I watched as a kid, like The Princess Bride, The Muppet Movie, um, and, and so on. But I really think that like my first experience like with a a significant Carol Kane performance was when I saw the mafu cage at x fest <laughs> wow that's amazing i love that actually um, and like i was on the cane train from then on like <laughs> uh but yeah like so i mean you guys know what x fest is uh but for listeners who may not be aware there is a a film exhibition collective based out of philly called exhumed film and every every year they did this annual exploitation film like genre film marathon called X Fest, and in 2014, um, I went to X Fest and it was my first exhumed film screening, and um, you know at 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 a certain point in the marathon they showed the Mafu Cage and I had I I don't think I'd even heard of the movie at that point, um, and I was not prepared. <laughs> for what ensued uh which we'll get we'll get into but this is an extremely insane and unhinged movie and so much of it uh really comes down to carol kane's performance um yeah yeah which is almost like it's so hard to describe uh you really kind of have to see it to believe it but we're we're gonna um, get into it and i'm gonna i'm gonna uh plumb the depths of your psyche to find out uh, (laughs) all the details about the Mafu cage. We do have a a little bit of Carol Kane news uh, that we want to talk about. We don't cover a lot of Carol Kane news here on Praising Kane, but occasionally there are things. And uh, I heard about this a while ago, and Doug, you've you've grabbed some interviews about this, but there is a uh, going to be a re-release of Hester Street, like a restored version. Is that correct, Doug? I restored, think I, I think it's that. all. Yeah, I think and a Blu-ray release of it as well. And I think it's yeah. been screening a little bit across the states over the last few months or so. And she's been doing. Carol Kane has been doing some uh, interviews around it, and quite sensibly so, since it was kind of a defining role for her in the '70s. It was one that she was nominated for an Academy Award for. I have included a couple of links uh, here to some of these interviews, but uh, since I've I've gone through them in some detail. The only thing I really wanted to mention about both of them is something that's common to both, which is that 
the interviewers in both cases praise Kane <laughs> uh, for her comedic chops, right? They think of her right. as a comedic actress, and yes. she has to not necessarily correct them, but at least uh, note the fact that at the time that Hester Street came out, and for you know much of the rest of the 1970s, she wasn't known as a comedic actress. She was a dramatic actress, which is something that we'll, we're going to get back to when we talk about her performance in in uh, the Mafu Cage, but. You know the the fact that we now think of Carol Kane in a certain way because of maybe Taxi or Scrooge, which gets brought up in both of these uh, interviews as well. The fact is, the dramatic chops that she showed in Hester Street and showed in other roles that we've talked about in the ten episodes of Praising Kane that we've done so far, I think, is something that people don't necessarily expect when they think about the entirety of the career of Carol Kane. Simply right. because at this point, um, people think of her mostly as a comedic actor but the other thing that's mentioned and she mentions in both of these interviews is of course her current role is on that tv series with uh al pacino which i yeah, have hunters yeah hunters hunters yeah right which is which is again a dramatic role now i i haven't heard a lot of great things about that tv series but it you know it, this is a kind of return to a drama for her uh, after a very lengthy period of time where she's taken almost yeah. exclusively comedic roles. Well, we've talked about this, Doug, uh, early on in the, the history of this podcast. You know, one of my strongest memories of her is from Scrooged, which right. is, like, entirely a joke. Same. Like, that whole thing mm-hmm. is just, like, one long, drawn-out humor thing. And, you know... Um, we we have discussed how the beginning of this podcast, it was all of her dramatic roles. And I'm a little torn at this point. We're about to cover a movie I think is one of her greatest dramatic roles. Uh, let's say regardless of what you think of the movie, it's one of her greatest <laughs> dramatic roles. Uh, but knowing that this represents a change, that after this, there's only a few more... Uh, larger dramatic roles in the filmography, or at least it seems that way, because a lot of what starts to come up is more comedic in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a specific section here that I wanted to, to read from because this interviewer in this second article asked, you know, are you surprised that more dramatic work didn't come your way? And Carol Kane responds, I guess I was to some extent, but I also have to take responsibility for the fact that I had some weird trouble handling my young success. I pushed it away. I went through a period of finding reasons to not take a couple of major films that would have continued me down the path that I was on. I just had trouble handling it. When I finally realized I was mistaken to push these things away, they were no longer there. And we talked about this, too. And it's interesting to have her name it that, like, um, to what extent was getting nominated for an Oscar so young not just difficult for her brand, let's call it, or the way she was perceived by the business, which I think is part of it, but also for her just on a personal level. That that like that she this you know, she Hester Street is an independent film. It's not mm-hmm. a giant Hollywood production. And to suddenly be thrust into the limelight based upon that, I think might have been really difficult. And I think in the coverage we've done of her film so far, I think we do see someone who's trying to figure out what kind of role she wants to play and what's what's going to work out for her. So hearing her name that w- was pretty important to me um, and, and really kind of affirmed some of what we've already discussed on the show. Absolutely. Adrian, Adrian I had to ask you, like, uh, after seeing Mafu Cage and deciding that you wanted to see more Carol Kane, were you drawn more to her comedic performances or to her dramatic ones? That's a really good question. I don't actually know <laughs> if I can remember. Um what was the next thing that I watched? 
I don't know. Like, I there's just kind of like a huge gap in my memory. I feel like the next thing that I remember watching her in was the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the um, thing, right? Is that there's just so at this point, even though our podcast, if we were just going in a sort of uh, chronological nature, everything almost has been more dramatic and some of the not dramatic stuff has not been great. Um, but like like Doug said, when you look at the whole of her career, there's just so much comedic work there. And I think it, it, it would be – I don't want anyone to hear what I'm saying and say, oh, Liam prefers the dramatic work necessarily. The comedic work is great. Like she is an amazing uh, comedic performer. But um, it is strange that like the, the dramatic stuff kind of goes away after a while. You know? I mean I, th- I think – it's because of Taxi, right? I mean, right, because right, so many more people right. saw that show than, than even a lot of these movies that we talked about so far. I mean, when you come from a sitcom that was that successful, people are going to try to, you know, paint you, in this case, with a fairly broad brush. But, I mean, they would. she is, at that point, a comedic performer, and I think that defined a lot of the roles that came afterwards. One of the other interesting things about both of these interviews is something that we didn't really pick up on our last episode, Liam, which is that... The reason that she took World's Greatest Lover is because no one was offering her roles anymore. Right. right? She, like you said, she, she had passed on some things, and the, the phone just stopped ringing. So when Gene Wilder called her up and asked her to be in that film, again, a comedy, a very broad comedy, he saw something in her that other people had not seen for a right. while. Maybe it was Andy Hall that he saw or whatever. And, uh, and it, it was a huge kind of turning point. And you can see she brings it up again and again. It's so funny because we said that we had never heard anyone talk about World's Greatest Lover, and she brings it up in both of these interviews. Obviously, well, it was very important to her. I also remember that's not exactly true. We covered it on our first episode because I had just listened to the interview. WTF one. Yeah, and she brings it up there, sort of that in her mind, you know, Gene Wilder saved her life. Now, granted, the difference was when we heard, when I heard that interview – I didn't know what the movie was. She just said the movie that she did with Gene Wilder. And I was like, okay, whatever. And I had no idea what it was. Only now that I've seen it, I'm like, of all the movies to say, saved your life. Jesus. (laughs) One other thing, though. I'm going to put these interviews in the show notes today. There is a really fun anecdote of the fact that after she did not win the Oscar for Hester Street... Uh, the next day, you know, she all that day of the day of the Oscars, people were calling her all day long. The next day, the phone didn't ring at all again uh, until someone called her. Liam, do you know who called her? Who? Jack Nicholson, who oh. her and him and uh, Angelica Houston took her out for for lunch as a way to take her mind off the fact that she didn't win the, the Oscar. Pretty, pretty nice thing. Yeah, Got to, we're yeah. down with Jack here on the Praising yeah. Kane <laughs> podcast. Well, I am uh, excited to discuss our movie today. Um, I think it's interesting. Like, we really are in a transitional phase. Like, we're about to talk to y'all, the audience, about this really insane film uh, that's really interesting and is more than dramatic. It is it is a taxing performance, I would say. And then the, the next movie on our list here, Doug, is The Muppet Movie. And I think that's that's really saying something about her career, right? Then after that is another horror film, When a Stranger Calls. Um, and then uh, we go from there. But I think we're going to start to see this transition from dramatic into more comedic until, like you said, because of Taxi, she becomes known as this uh, comedic performer that that is has um, popular 
buy-in, right? It's not just yeah. that she's good, but people know her, which is sort mm -hmm. of the other uh, uh, the other currency of Hollywood. But let's go ahead. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about 1978's The Mafu Cage. We'll be right back. Before her father's untimely death at his jungle research compound in central Zaire, he made Ellen promise to care for her sister. Sissy! Give Sissy freedom to create her own familiar environment, he counseled. For civilized institutions have no understanding of the soul of a wild thing. Jesus And loving her sister as she did, Ellen agreed. <laughs> Back in Africa, running naked with your nasty little They were not nasty. They were my best friends I ever had. Fuck you and Daddy. Ellen, a successful astronomer, cares for her mentally ill sister, Sissy, who keeps a variety of primates in the home they inherited from their anthropologist father. Well, the home they inherited, the primates not so much. <laughs> when Ellen begins a romance, Sissy's jealousy proves deadly. Woo! That's an understatement. It's 1978's The Mafu Cage, uh, directed by Karen Arthur. Uh, this was her follow-up to her uh, premiere uh, feature-length film, 1975's Legacy, um, which was also John Delancey's film debut. Uh, she was an actress for a lot of 60s television, and she'd go on to direct a, a lot more TV work, I think uh, she's known for, including the baffling TV movie The Rape of Richard Beck, the 1991 TV remake of Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt, and the Jackson 5 miniseries The Jackson. Jacksons, an American dream. A quick personal note, I didn't know what the Jacksons were until the Jacksons, an American dream I watched. I just thought Michael Jackson was his own dude. That's how unhistorical <laughs> I was as a child. I was like, wait, there were other people? What's going on? It was very weird. Uh, written by uh, Don Chastain, best known as the soap opera actor. Uh, this is the only feature film he wrote, but he would also write 20 episodes of the soap opera As the World Turns in the 90s. Uh, in, the, in the special features on the Blu-ray, Karen Arthur talks about how uh, Don was uh, her lover and how she had to ply him with uh, food and alcohol and sex to get him to focus enough to finish the script because otherwise he just wouldn't finish a script ever and i love that uh loosely adapted from eric westfall's play uh oh man here we go <laughs> maybe you should read these Trois things ahead of time. Nuage. yeah you can, do the, you can do the translated version if you want which, yeah which is you and your clouds is that right I think yes. that's correct. Yes. Uh, which was also turned into a movie for French television in the mid-70s, which I'd like to see. I wish I, I had seen it, actually, now that now that I know that. Um, uh, the cast, Lee Grant plays Ellen. Carol Kane uh, plays Sissy. Will Gear plays Zom. James Olsen, David. Uh, and, of course, 
the mafu the one mafu we get to actually see <laughs> is the orangutan budar uh which we'll talk about budar a little bit later um mafu cage this is a film uh that my opinion has changed on over time apparently uh but i i have a lot to say about it now and i think it's going to be a great conversation i will say uh i'm inclined to start with our guest doug uh because one of the reasons you're here adriana is that you volunteered you you volunteered as tribute you were like oh, you're talking about the Mafu cage? I must participate. And so I'm, I'm inclined to start with you, although normally I would start with Doug as he's never seen it before. And so I'm also kind of curious what he thinks. But let's start with you, Adriana. I, I know what you think, but for our audience's sake, what do you think of the Mafu cage? What appeals to you? I, I'm kind of giving it away a little bit. About the Mafu cage, you're telling someone about the Mafu cage, maybe who hasn't seen it yet. What do you, what do you want to say about this movie? Um... I'm, well, I already went into a bit about like my my first experience with the sure, film sure. at X Fest, but I and I said this before we started recording, but I'm kind of like a total mark for this movie in several ways. Like, first of all, I love really histrionic, over the top performances, sure, and I think yeah. Carol Kane in this film is like the embodiment of histrionics. Like, it's just unbelievable like the the extremes that she goes to in this performance um also you know i i just like i love thing i love a good like sapphic twist sure and there are certainly one in this film although it is quite unconventional and i'm sure we're going to get into that um yeah, I, 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 you know, I just, I love exploitation films, and I think that this, you, you can make a good argument for this being an exploitation film, not a horror film. Um, but, but yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of elements to, the, to this movie that, you know, when I saw it, I just completely fell in love, despite some of its flaws. Um, but Carol Kane certainly is like a huge part of what makes this film work so well. Uh, in her performance. So, yeah, I don't know. Was that uh, was that an adequate response? Oh, totally. And I'm glad you specifically mentioned uh, being a mark for histrionic performances. That reminded me uh, why I came back to this movie and reevaluated it uh, from my also having seen it first at X-Fest and apparently not loving it as much. I was reading uh, House of Psychotic Women. Uh, and and uh, the the the... When, when she talks about the Mafu cage in that book, I came back to the movie and watched it again. And I was like this whole time trying to remember, like, what what switched for me about this movie? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it was reading about it and then watching it again after reading about it. Um, Doug, you are the only person on this particular episode of Praising Kane who has not seen this movie multiple times now. And uh, I'm wondering for you going in, you didn't know – maybe too much or you knew a little bit about it going in how what do you think of this movie how did it hit you as a first-time viewer it's always difficult to watch a movie that other people have described in in the terms that we've already used to describe it right in using words like this is you know very shocking surprising weird uh you go into it with a certain kind of expectation and i will say that the movie that i got was very different than what i expected it is a very strange movie and it is the kind of movie that 
probably only could have been made at the time that it was made. And you can kind of see why uh, it is a movie that kind of fell into obscurity for a long time. I don't know if anyone is familiar with some of the releases of this movie prior to some of the recent releases, but like most for a very long time, the only way to watch this is, was in a very terrible looking full screen version, even on DVD. And it's a movie that gained kind of a cult reputation because it was so hard to find. And movies like that, if you if you kind of miss that whole part of it and then you just see the final result, now you can see this movie in a very nice looking print and you know where, where it really has been given its due. Does it then live up to its reputation? And for me, it did, but in a very surprising way. It took me a long time to kind of catch on to it when I was watching it. The first 45 minutes or so, I'm trying to get a bead on what it's trying to be and what it's tr what these characters are supposed to represent to each other. And then as the <laughs> twists, uh, let's say, start piling up, and as this performance starts to kind of, I mean, it's always, it starts at like an 11 and then just goes up and up and up as the movie goes on. I mean, it has ebbs and flows, but it is a very, um, very out there performance by Carol Kane. I, once we hit the halfway mark of this movie, I was totally on board and my mouth was just hanging open for the last half hour, 45 minutes of it. It is, this is a movie that you, I don't know if I'm going to be re revisiting very often. It is an unpleasant yeah. and unnerving movie in a lot of ways. It's difficult it, to watch. Absolutely. But it is one, especially because of one moment, which we'll talk about in just a little bit, but it is one that I think I'm going to easily recommend to other people. The one thing, and I know we'll, we're going to talk about it in more detail, but it really is the thing that jumped out at me most about this film is the fact that if you look at the last episodes of Praising Kane, the ones that we've been doing recently, right? Where like, like again, Andy Hall is a comedic performance in The World's Greatest Lover, but in The World's Greatest Lover, she's playing basically a straight role to this very over-the-top Gene Wilder role. Most of these are very restrained performances. We haven't seen Carol Kane do anything like this before. This is this is a completely different side. Even in, in the comedic roles we know she do later, which tend to be a little more boisterous, this is nothing like that. This is maybe the Carol Kane role above all others, but it also is the one that is the least representative of her career. This, I've always obviously loved her as a performer, which is why we have a podcast devoted to her, but this gave me a whole other appreciation for her talents. Yeah, Carol Kane just fully revealing her power level. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to borrow a Dragon Ball Z reference. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel similarly, um, you know, I, I think I was confused by aspects of the movie uh the first time i saw it but when we were talking about doing this podcast i i think it was one of the first things i mentioned to you like oh and then we get to the mafu cage it's like it feels to me even though i know that maybe biographically it wasn't significant for her career it's it's not clear that this um you know opened new doors or anything like that for me as an appreciator of her performing ability this this is a task this movie was a task it asked a lot of her um and and we'll get into some of the ways that it did so i do want to be very specific uh i agree that this is a difficult movie to watch for me there really is just like a, a specific moment um, that is very, very crushing, and 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 we'll, we, you know, like you said, we'll get to it a little bit later. But I, you know, I do want to preface that. Rangatang innocent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I think we need to describe a little, not not of that scene specifically, yeah, but like what is story. what right, what right. is yeah. the Ma what is the mafu cage? What is this yeah. all about? Yeah. 
Yeah, because I don't think you, I don't think you, the synopsis that we have no. read really did this film justice. Can, and can I you, think if we're going to discuss it, we need to really provide more context for the listener. Yeah, can you walk us through a little bit more, and then from there we can talk about because the the other sure. thing about this movie that probably isn't clear right away is that there's a lot of text and subtext worth unpacking. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, let's start with the plot, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Um. Well, the Mafu Cage is a, a chamber piece that centers on two sisters, Sissy and Ellen. And they live in this large, sprawling house in the Hollywood Hills that they, that they inherited from their anthropologist's father, who, who passed away kind of like, bef- like at some point before the events of the film, although we don't actually know how recent the death was. Um, but the older sister, Ellen is an astronomer who works at Griffith Observatory. And she's a little bit repressed. And, yeah, that might be an understatement. (laughs) And she's a caretaker to her mentally ill younger sister, Sissy, with whom she has an incredibly codependent relationship. And Sissy seems to be deeply traumatized by their father's death. And is in this sort of state of arrested development where she is sort of regressed into a childlike state, trying to recreate or recapture the time that she spent in Africa with her father when she was a child. Uh, You know, when he was working at a research compound in central Zaire, according to the voiceover in the trailer, um, uh, and Zaire is now known as the Democratic Republic republic of congo um uh but like she is fixated on this to the extent that like the inside of their house is full of all kinds of plants and vegetation and african sculptures and so forth and she's got tribal music on a reel-to-reel tape loop that she plays seemingly all day long (laughs) and is trying basically to to recreate the experience of of living in this in in Zaire and Sissy is 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 very mentally ill but she's also incredibly manipulative consciously so and although she is in many ways the more vulnerable of of the two sisters she exerts this control over Ellen through these bouts of um explosive anger and threats of violence and self-harm that she uses to coerce Ellen into doing what she wants and the number one thing that she wants is mafus, <laughs> which is her term for monkeys. And we come to learn that Sissy has had a number of pet monkeys over the years that she keeps in a big cage in their living room. Uh, but the monkeys don't last very long because she winds up killing them during these violent outbursts that she has. And, and Ellen, unlike Sissy, who lives this very insular existence inside the home, Ellen has a life outside of her sister. Uh, life outside of the house um and she is fighting this feeling she has for one of her co-workers david uh, because she feels like she can't commit herself to anybody else that that she is like trapped by this codependent relationship that that she has with her sister um but she does eventually wind up getting involved with david and that's when the shit really hits the fan or i suppose the the cage door 
I uh, oh man, that thank you for that. And it there's a few things that I think are worth mentioning. Like one that Ellen and Sissy are not just codependent, but they are quite intentionally re-inhabiting the roles of their parents. So, uh, you know, uh, their father was the anthropologist who wanted to be in Africa to be around uh, not just uh, the folks who live there, but the animals was very open to having animals live in their dwelling and in their space and be a part of their life. And their mother hated all of that, complained Mm -hmm. about it, uh, uh, according to Ellen constantly. Um, And really, Ellen sees herself as sort of the continuing legacy of her mother and her her mother's strangely Victorian era, you know, uh, 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 uptightness, uh, whereas Sissy is sort of living into this uh, <coughs> role uh, that her father had of being more connected to uh, wherever it was that they were uh, at the time, but, like, she's recreating it now. It's entirely artificial because they live in a mansion in California, and yet she's, like, you know, it's it's as if she's creating that space for herself. And um, the other aspect of that is how much this movie reminds me of, of a movie like Basket Case, right? Mm. Like, or uh, really any movie where there's a horror at home or you know in your personal life that you're trying to hide so it could be you know it's it's it could be i'm thinking of any number of 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 specifically 70s movies where whoever it is that's waiting for you at home is going to be a problem and so you interact with the outside world but there's this anxiety that like uh if people know about sissy then there's going to be trouble you know then they're gonna it's it's gonna be an issue and it's so crazy like i i you know just listening to you now adriana that kind of click clicked for me and that that's one of the themes right that like you know sissy is trapped in the house uh uh ellen gets to go out and be a part of the world have her job where she is observing the sun from afar and that's like how she you know does her work and uh and sort of that that uh implied tension there but you know that's one of a lot of themes. There's there's a lot of stuff going on here thematically. Whether we're talking about um, uh, uh, Sissy's relationship with her with her uh, deceased father, about the theme of of the uh, African uh, stuff running through the film. Uh, um, there's y- like y- Freudian daddy issues. Oh yeah, yeah, and Gen- all the different the weird gender dynamics. dynamics. So I'm gonna I'm actually gonna. You know, Doug, as you're the first time viewer, which of these uh, difficult and very pregnant themes do you want to uh, talk about first? Well, I honestly, the one that that hit me the most is one that I think hit you the most the first time you saw it, which is the theme of colonialism that goes throughout yeah. it. Right. I mean, this is about mm-hmm. a uh, I mean, the, this this movie does not have any people of color. in It, it just has uh, Carol Kane. um you know, dressing up in in African garb throughout it, these very kind of ornate dresses, and in one scene, dressing up uh, for a ritual. Uh, and I I had trouble kind of getting the movie's take on how legitimate her love for Africa was. I, I, sure, I, I take it seriously, right? I mean, she obviously has a lot of affection for Africa, and but she's also surrounded by all this, frankly, stolen art, right? I mean, th- this yeah. is a a young and the suggestion i think is also that she left africa when she was still particularly young and that her you know she talks about her memories of it but it kind of feels like 
that that maybe those memories are not so clear because it was such a long time ago and that she has this kind of romanticized view of it that she is kind of maintaining with blasting the music and, and dressing in the clothes and being surrounded by the art and things like that and is looking at it from a very kind of naive and childlike way as opposed to kind of the full picture of her. I mean, her father, it, it the fact that there are pictures of her father all over the house, but there are no pictures, I, I mean, or very few of their mother, the 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 familial aspect of it and the, the parental aspect and particularly the patriarchal aspect of it is so strong and kind of overbearing throughout the movie and him being part of that cultural colonial part of it that that has in some way it seems contributed to her mental illness there's a real stew of difficult material here that i have a lot of trouble kind of untangling and i guess part of that is is developing a trust for the director to some extent but one of the difficulties with that, and again, I don't want to go on and on about it, is that this is from the 1970s when people maybe weren't as sensitive to that. And, and many people were, but a lot of films certainly weren't. And maybe it just isn't as something that the movie was as interested in exploring as some of the other themes that we're also going to talk about. So it's a movie that that I that I know that that's part of what it's trying to say, but I'm not really entirely sure what it is that it's trying to say about those aspects. Yeah. Well, should I give my take? Please. Yeah, please. Okay. So there are some interpretations of the film that fall more on the negative end of the spectrum that, you know, that argue that it is a racist movie because it draws a connection between Sissy's madness and the influence of Africa and that mm. it's a corruptive influence. And, you know, I'm super white. So white that I'm practically translucent. So I, I'm not about to dismiss that take or say that there's no merit to it. And I do think that there is undeniably a degree of othering at play with respect to how African imagery and cultures are utilized in the film. But in general, that's not my read. And, you know, maybe it, it's like typical for me as a white person to say that like that, like that that's not my take but when i watch this movie what i get is patriarchy births monstrous things like imperialism like colonialism like white entitlement to other cultures and, and other lands but also like the damaged people who have to live with the trauma of its influence and sissy to me is not unhinged because of her con connection to africa but rather her fixation on Africa is a product of her traumatized mind reaching right. for that familiar paternalistic influence, which, given the fact that she clearly has unresolved issues with her father, mm -hmm. I think we can infer that it was perhaps it was not a great relationship. And because she associates Africa with her father, because they spent time together there, that is how that particular dysfunction manifests. Um, and to circle back to my earlier point about like the foreign other, to use Liam's term that he used in uh, an older review of the movie, <laughs> I think that certainly like more could have been done to d directly address like the indigenous peoples who are most impacted by settler colonialism, or at least like directly address like what is going on with her father and like her 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 connection to the continent of Africa, like, 
ultimately, I don't think that we're meant to conclude that Sissy is mentally ill because of her time in Africa. Like, I, I don't think Karen Arthur was going for a heart of darkness moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certain I, I can understand why people have that read. But to me, it is not like it has less to do with Africa and more to do with her relationship with her father, and and like the the cultural appropriation is sort of incidental to that. And that's maybe not the best thing. I think it also plays into the, the enabling that Ellen does to her illness, right? I mean, uh, Ellen allows their house to be decorated in this ridiculous way and allows her sissy to have, you know, I mean, and, and frankly, you know, sissy's very manipulative emotionally. She threatens suicide and threatens self harm whenever she doesn't get her way. But at some point, Ellen has to have, you know, made a stand that she obviously has not made. Up well, to the and point. the, the reveal right. of that is all very intentional. Like, when we first see the space, uh, a lot of it is very close up, and it's really focused on um, some really beautiful shots of Sissy. And sort of, she really looks at home in the space. We only get, like, a static, like, wide shot to really give us... Uh, a, a, a solid idea of the scope of how ridiculous this is when um, uh, Ellen's love interest comes in, the interloper comes into the yes. space and then suddenly David. we see it through David. Yes. We see it through his eyes and and the audience is suddenly like, wait, what the fuck is, th-? you know what I mean? Like yeah, that, right. at least kind of fucked up. At least that was her intention, right? Her intention was to make it feel eccentric but understandable before then and then david's presence is meant to become our response which is like he i mean he might as well look at the camera and go can you believe this shit like that's how just unbelievably not horrified but uh, uh, surprised he is by like oh this is this is how you live this is where you live okay cool no it's great it's incredible and, yeah. and he says incredible in a tone where you know okay you know what does he really mean by that I think, um, I think, uh, he also really underestimates like what a dangerous sissy actually yes. is. Oh, 100%. Well, and, and, until, so does and Ellen, he doesn't right? realize until it's way too late. Right, right, exactly. I mean, I, I you could say Ellen does too because, uh, you know, the fact that this has happened with the Mafus multiple times, but this time she saw it and then it was more horrifying. And I'm like, I don't know, if I ever saw a dead primate in any form, I'd be like, oh man, I'm really bummed out right now especially that it keeps happening yeah the one one mafu is plenty of mafu there's no reason can i I also say that i went into this movie not knowing what a mafu was and as just to reaffirm to people who are listening even though adrian has already let us know it's it's these monkeys that are brought in right and but she refers to them exclusively as mafus the idea that they decided to title this movie the Mafu cage, knowing that no one would know what Mafu refers to in it, is so unbelievable <laughs> to me. Like, like anyone who is not who just like knows nothing about this movie, the Mafu cage. What's that about? And it's about a young woman murdering monkeys. <laughs> well, I, I, I <laughs> do think I Among do think things. that I do think that the original title was a bit on the nose, but I think it's worth keeping it in mind because it's such a theme still in the movie. You know, you and your clouds. The clouds are a representation of these. Um, and again, you know, I don't know that the film is very precise in its depiction of of 
uh, mental illness, so I don't know that I have a diagnosis for Sissy. But these rages that come upon her are the clouds of the play's title. That there's you, the right. person that I identify as Sissy, and then there's these turns, these yeah. these moments of darkness that you have, and you become someone else entirely. And that that way, I mean, what what the film does make very clear that I think was probably present in the play as well is like. Um, this way of life is only maintained because of Ellen's willingness to maintain it because of Ellen's willingness to give into it. This is the only reason this ship hasn't already sunk is because Ellen is so devoted to it, which by the way, makes me wonder if that's what it was like with their father as well, that their father's African adventures to do what exactly right about primates, I guess it's not really clear exactly what his most, his, his work is so important, but they don't really dive into it, but it, it feels to me like, well, their actual life was maintained by their mother, which is why she was tired of their being, uh, orangutans in the house and such, because she's <laughs> trying to like keep them in some sort of like uh, fancy bourgeois existence in the middle of whatever. I mean, this the dinner scene is really such an indication of that. That like they they sit yeah. down to have dinner and it's all fancy frilly. You know, this is a house where there is regularly a, 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 an either living or dead primate in the house. <laughs> but when we're having dinner, we have to have all this fanciness. Uh, you know, there's there's there's, there's and they're talking a, about supposed like primitive yes. tribes in yes. Africa. Yes, exactly. I think that setting is very important. And, and so I think on rewatch, I definitely feel a lot more like, again, I don't know that this movie is about colonialism, but I do think there's a sense uh, uh, by Arthur uh, that something is wrong here and it's related to that relationship. I think that's why it's so intentional. Something I didn't pick up the first time I watched it is that all of Ellen's outfits are very specifically reminiscent of Victorian. It's not yep. just that the Even house. Even the house. Has, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it, it, her the way she dresses, the the silverware they're using in the dinner scene, that you're supposed to get a very certain like anachronistic feel from her that I, I mean even even Zom as a character as Will Gear's character I mean he dresses right. like he's a real old... Rudyard Kipling type uh, yes yeah yeah absolutely yeah character. yeah yeah or, or Teddy Roosevelt even I mean someone who definitely feels like a different era than this movie yeah. is I mean that is we're we're supposed to think it takes place in the late 70s so I think I think you're right Adriana that my initial uh, and let's just name it. I'm tired of dancing around it. That I, I wrote a very negative review the first time. I, I don't think it's very negative, but I wrote a, a negative review the first time I saw it. And I think that was what was bumming me out is that there is such a theme in literature of the fragile, white, innocent person exposed to it could be Africa, it could be Asia, whatever it is that racialized other, and then they're somehow corrupted by it. But I think you're right, like a deeper, like paying attention to the film, this is about her father and her relationship with her father. And and for me, we, we, we keep talking about the positive, you know, she's trying to recreate this positive memory of, of Africa and, and what she was experiencing in Africa and all this stuff. I also get the feeling that something traumatic happened while she was there. Yes. That something bad happened to Sissy, y'all. And this is not just about, um, you know, what we might consider a chemical imbalance. So that's part of it. There's PTSD. Something horrible has happened that she's still processing. And we're getting bits of pieces of that in a way that maybe I wasn't as attuned to the first time I saw it. But on this watching, I'm like, something happened. And I think it was her dad, but I don't know who it was. But they did not treat Sissy well. I don't know if you guys got that vibe as well. 
No, I did, and I think I kind of already touched on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With like, but um, real quick, uh, a, a little while ago while you were talking, you had mentioned the cinematography, and I just want to, I give a shout out to John Bailey, who was the cinematographer yep. for this film. Um, he he went on to have like a really great career. He shot the Pope of Greenwich Village. Um, Never swimming heard of in Cambodia, <laughs> a bunch of Paul Schrader films. Uh, but I think, like his his work on this movie is quite remarkable. And Agreed. one of the things that sticks out to me is that this movie has a very claustrophobic feel to it. And yet, if you look at the shot composition, there's a lot of like, uh, like m- medium shots and like. God, I'm forgetting the term. Uh, I'm a little wine drunk right now. Um, But, like, there aren't a ton of close-ups. So the fact that this movie feels so claustrophobic is kind of a miracle. Uh, But I I think that also speaks to, like, the fact that most of the film takes place inside that house. Um but yeah, I don't know. I like uh, there are so many shots in this movie that are very striking. I think it's kind of amazing that for a movie that I mean really only has like four people in it, right? And and was designed as yeah. a play to a certain extent, right? I mean even though it's a loose adaptation of it, that it doesn't feel it's it's you know I've been watching a few uh, adaptations of plays for films because I'm uh, for a different podcast I'm going through the career of William Friedkin who started his career making adaptations Hell like Oh yeah, uh, The Boys in the Band. The Boys in the Band obviously uh, is one of the key examples uh, and The Birthday Party as well within a couple of years and those movies I, I love them a ton but you would never when you watch them it's clear that these are adapted from stage plays. It's just yeah. impossible to get away from. If I did not know that The Mephu Cage was adapted in some way from a stage play, I probably wouldn't have guessed it outside of the fact that it has just a few locations and a very right. small cast because of the way it's shot. You're right. Very claustrophobic, but not in the way that it's just characters standing there and talking. There's so many different shot compositions where you get a really good geography of the mansion, but it never right. feels like you're looking at the same thing over and over. Well, in the juxtaposition of the mansion and the interior of the mansion with then the observatory, yeah. like that is such a intentional uh, uh, decision by you know everyone involved that that you really see that as a, as conflicting places like that she's in two different worlds uh, between her work life and her home life. It's just mm-hmm. I, and, and shout out to like it, it, not just the cinematography, but I think the set design, the costuming, the art Absolutely. direction of this thing. A lot of the story is told by just seeing Sissy. You just see her. You see her in these outfits. You see her interacting with the beautiful orangutan. You see the ways that she... um, The face paint. Yeah, painting her face in these... uh, You know, the the juxtaposition of her using this beautiful Victorian mirror as she paints uh, what feels like entirely made-up tribal designs on her face. Or like when they're making dinner and all of her instruments for making dinner are like traditional African cooking... You know, yeah. implements which Including she has no the reason that to she, use. At a certain point, slashes her wrists with yeah. yes, in order to get Ellen to comply with her demands. 
it's it's all that. I mean, in in uh, in uh, the interview with with uh, Karen Arthur, she said that they got all of the art in the film uh, from one collector, and they basically just took his entire collection and filled the house with it. It was like every piece that that he owned, and so I just think there was a lot for a film that is a very modest budget. And, and I was thinking about that, Doug, when you were talking about you know whether. It, it felt like a filmed play or not. I mean, I would have just assumed had I not known it was based on a play, it's just a low budget movie, right? It's yeah, just a, exactly, they, right. They, you know, uh, uh, it's worth noting. Um, and we'll, we'll switch to this topic in a second, but it's worth noting that, um, uh, you know, as much as this is a, a podcast is devoted to Carol Kane, Lee Grant was a big star at the time. Like mm-hmm. she was a big fucking deal. So the fact that she's in this is just in and of itself like what and you know in retrospect obviously Carol Kane was no was already known because of her Oscar nomination, but the two of them in this movie, it's kind of crazy to think about because it's not just a low budget production, but it is one in which uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on now, Doug. We we talked about Africa uh, a, a, as a theme in the movie. Adriana, I wanted to switch gears to you. Uh, what are some of the other uh, themes you'd like us to touch on? Because there's so much going on here. We we could probably do a second episode covering some of the stuff that we're not going to get to cover just in this episode. Right. Well, I think we probably should address the uh, the incest reveal. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which I think is, like, remarkably well-telegraphed. Like, it's it's a twist, but also, like, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, for, like, very early on, I think, they, we start to see hints that, like, they are unusually close. Um, you know, there's that scene towards the beginning of the, of the film where Sissy gives Ellen the sensual back massage with oil mm-hmm. and it is she's going on and on about how like touching ellen's flesh is like touching her own flesh and so on and um there's another conversation a little while later where they're like lying in bed together and sissy is talking about how it's been a while since she um caressed ellen's breasts and there's like a line about how she used to make her gush which yeah. uh yeah I like I think when I watched that at X-Fest I like squeaked like I made like my mouth was making strange sounds <laughs> cuz it was just like wow they act she really said that um but well and, yeah. and an important context for that for for people who are listening who maybe haven't seen the film uh no one else can touch sissy when anyone touches her, uh, right. she loses her shit. Yeah, but, yeah she has a meltdown. But it doesn't, her even, it doesn't even have to be a human touching her. Right. No, well, that's the, the orangutan learned the hard way. Yeah, yeah. Well, she'll she'll cuddle with the orangutan if she can initiate it. But if he grabs, if and, and again, y'all, we're talking about a wild animal. If this animal touches her at all without her initiating yeah she loses it she loses it and so the fact that she the only person that we see her be intimate with is her sister should immediately let us know like oh that's interesting that's strange i wonder what that's about you know but yeah the fact i thought the on rewatch because i had you know it's been a little bit since i watched it i thought that the incest was a little more on the ambiguous side until that the scene in the hammock and i was like Oh right. right, no, they yeah they. It they wasn't ambiguous it. to me, I gotta say. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we don't actually see it, like, 
what, 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 how should I put this? Like, we don't see, vi- like, visual confirmation no, that, yes, no, this but, is the situation but. until they are in the hammock and they start kissing. Yeah. And then there's that, like, discretion shot where the camera pans out and, like, Carol Kane pulls the hammock over them so we can't see what they're doing. But, it, like, it's very clear you what's going on. know what they're doing. We all know what they're doing. Come on. Um uh, I want to. I, I mentioned her briefly, but I want to give y'all a chance to talk a little bit about the other performances in this film, um, because it's, as far as I'm concerned, the film is to some extent a magic trick by Carol Kane. Like her, her performance is so yeah. essential, but it doesn't work without the other people in the movie. So I want to take some time, and, and I'll start with you, Adriana. What did you think of the other performances in the film besides, you know, the the reason we are gathered here today? Uh, well, I think Lee Grand is great. Um, just the way that she portrays, like the the existential despair of being trapped by this relationship with her sister, and this repressed desire that she feels for David, and like I don't know, I, I felt. I feel her character is very frustrating in many ways, not least, not least of all because she does so much enabling of Sissy's behavior, but yet at the same time, I couldn't help but feel sorry for her. Right. And I think that's because Grant imbues so much humanity into this character. Um, I think I think she her performance is probably the best after... Carol Kane. Nobody can can touch Carol Kane in this film. Like she is just in another. She's like in the stratosphere, <laughs> like just on another level. But I I'm I was really impressed by Willie Grant's performance. Uh, the other performances. I mean, David seems like kind of a tool to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes, he does. <laughs> uh, I have to I have to admit I cannot remember the actor's name who plays David, but I think he does a good job of playing like a smarmy tool. Yeah, James uh, Olsen. Yes. Kudos to James Olsen. Um but I think I think Carol Kane is undeniably the MVP of this movie by like a wide margin. Well, we'll spend a little more time, you know, we, we always have to wrap up with, with Carol's performance, but I, I want to talk to you, Doug. Um, it's funny uh, that you brought up, uh, Adriana, that uh, James Olsen is kind of smarmy. I, you know, I, yes, I didn't feel that quite so strongly till he shows up at the house and suddenly he's this like interloper into their lives, you know what I mean? Like, the way he interacts with Sissy, I was like, well, oh, I don't like this guy. Before that, I was kind of like, I don't know. Eh, I'm kind of on the fence on him a little bit. I don't find him particularly charming. I'm not convinced he's going to uh, save Ellen, which is maybe, you know, that's not his intention. But in reality, that's what he would have ended up doing. Um, but once he gets I in the house. I just think he's very pushy and doesn't really respect boundaries. Like, Absolutely. I mean, I mean we know as viewers. Yeah. We know that Ellen has feelings for him, but she doesn't make that clear to him. In fact, she is very resistant to his advances, and yet that he does not take a hint. He keeps pushing her, which, you know, does not endear him to me. I'll put it that way. 
I, the movie I, also, uh, I mean, he invites some of the trouble that he runs into in that house. Right. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there, there, it cuts away before he answers the question that Sissy asks him and whether she is as attractive as her sister. But the suggestion is that he's willing to, you know, go along with things to see how far they're going to go. Right. He doesn't there is seem like that a kind resistant. of sexual tension. Yeah, I, I, think, I think a strong sexual scenes. tension to the idea that, I mean, when she chains him to the wall, look, we're going to give away some stuff here. When she chains him to the wall, he thinks this is some sort of sexual game that she's playing. I mean, he's he's willing to go along with it. And as we've already alluded to, by the time he realizes that he is actually trapped with a person who is unpredictable, to say the least, it's already well too late. He he has no way out. Yeah, I... I uh... I think the thing for me with the earlier part of the film uh, that you were talking about, Adriana, is that I thought of that as the bad politics of the filmmaker at the time. I wasn't thinking of it as how I would evaluate someone acting that way now, which is this dude fucking sucks. I, but I, I, was, actually, I, mean, I, I guess agree. that's fair. But I, I agree was, with you, Liam. That is how I interpreted it as well, which I, is just that this was the 70s view of what a – a man just showing his love for someone is supposed to. Yeah, be. it was this creepy shit. Like, I, yeah. I gr- granted, that doesn't make your point wrong, Adriana, at all. It's just like thinking of it that way. Like, oh, he's been in that sort of beginning. Didn't even occur to me. I literally thought when those moments happened, like, man, I, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if Karen Arthur regrets like sexualizing this man's uh, anger and violence the way this movie does. <laughs> because like, I, I, I think some of those scenes are supposed to be hot. And they're they're not. Like, yeah, that sex scene on the uncomfortable looking ugh. wooden staircase, I gotta say, <laughs> not sexy. But and, and, you know, I think it's worth talking about that because those that scene is like intercut with these scenes of Sissy playing with the Mafu. Yeah. And like their play is very tactile, and I think the fact that there's this cross cutting going on, uh, you know, we're supposed to be making some kind of connection between the sex that is happening between david and ellen and like sissy's interaction with the orangutan like it's like almost kind of like there's this vague bestiality undercurrent absolutely i think that's true i also think of the mafu are and uh, some sort of fetish object for Sissy, where they're both yeah. the focus of her desire and the focus of her rage, which I'm sure she learned from her father to some extent. Um, and, and also the idea that like the only relationship that's real in the movie is her and Ellen. So in both yeah. cases, they're both being distracted by someone else from the reality that they are entirely codependent and no other ape or human can actually come between them because they're so eternally linked to each other such that, I mean, you know, spoilers for a really, you know, older movie, y'all. Ellen has to choose death. The only way to stop Sissy, Ellen has to choose death, or at least that's how, you know, it, it comes across. And like, there's something about that, that really makes all the other relationships in the film feel secondary to this connection that and 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 I and and again sort of talking about what we've talked about so far that connection being forged by their parents that's that whatever happened in that household before we show up was fucking damaging for everybody you know that everyone is is you know had that scar afterwards you know it, it, it helps that all the pictures of their dad are fucking menacing, right? Yeah, he, no the kidding. Man, right? The man didn't know how to smile. So every time we think of their dead dad, it's like some weird bearded white man staring from like a, a place he doesn't look like he belongs, you know? 
it, since we're, I just want to give a little bit of props to Will Gear as Zom in the film. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This was his last role before he passed away in the same year that the film came out. Uh, he's he's an actor that I really like, but I like him more for the stuff he did outside of acting as a social activist and a musician than I do for necessarily his performances. But I do think he has a lot of kind of sincere warmth. He is the only character in this movie that I would maybe call, I mean, you realize... He's the voice of reason. He's the voice of reason yeah. while obviously being someone who... Uh, has at least in the past helped enable. I mean, he's still providing monkeys after. Yeah, he keeps yeah. giving her monkeys Murder. even though she's killing all of them. But at least, at least when the it, it's funny because as the movie starts, at, you know, this was the end of the line for him. The enabling stops now, and then Ellen never hasn't gotten to that point yet, and that what ends up being her undoing. But uh, Zom probably still went way too far in his uh, <laughs> trying to placate Sissy and and her desires. And like yeah. I, I think we can infer based on context clues that like Zom was a friend of their father or like somebody who is an old friend of the family from when they were children. And I think he feels this like paternal, he, this paternalistic sort of like protectiveness towards them. And also like he, he feels like a, an obligation to them. So like, uh, I think he's conflicted because, you know, he knows that, Sicily, Sissy is very unwell and that he shouldn't be continuing to provide her with the with these animals but yet he like he can't say no like he just feels right. she's got him wrapped around her finger basically I mean doesn't it feel very uh like narratives of colonial England to be like the way that we deal with the mental illness and trauma of the people we know is just to enable their bad behavior. Like it's yeah. like, like he, he, it's to some extent I he really does think, and I, and I think that the same is true as Ellen, that they're trying to, to help. Like they're trying to make things better in the wake of whatever evil the father did, you know, this is how he's going to deal with it. And it's like that, that it's not helping. It's just hurting a bunch of, Poor, poor apes. I love the apes. I, I know we're going to get to that in a second. I, I feel like we've just been dancing around another thing, which both of you have been saying without saying, which is that you think, and I'm just interpreting here, that their father sexually abused her, and that's the reason that she is at least partially the reason for her mental illness. Again, I, I wasn't really looking for that, though it's something that certainly with the images near the end, it certainly seems to be implied. Is that what both of you are getting at? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, there's like this unspoken thing that happened. For sure. I think the first time I saw the film, I didn't think that, Doug. I thought that she had been in some way abused or assaulted, but I wasn't thinking of the father. Um, In subsequent viewings, the father's just too menacing for me not to think that maybe that's the suggestion. Again, I'm not saying that it's clear in the movie. It, it, it feels C- very... certainly the idea that that every time she's touched without her permission, she yeah. reacts so violently yeah. seems to be yeah. an extension yes. of that idea. Yeah, and even the even the way she and also ref- just the way she deifies him is like a yes. weird yes. Like, what is it? I I don't I don't know like what there's like a I'm sure there is some sort of like term in psychology for this where like she is she just can't like break away from this relationship that she has with her abuser. Right. And yeah, she's absolutely. she's kind of just like, yeah. I mean, I used the term deifying earlier, but yeah, like right. that's what that's what is going the, on. The scene where she's very frustrated with Ellen, and she sort of falls into this like talk about daddy and what da- daddy understands, and da- daddy, right, you know, right. 
all of that struck me as very <laughs> like what's going on with daddy. But then the, the thing that finally sold it for me, Doug, and, and maybe people will feel the same way is the final mural at the end right. that, you know, that's her father looking in from that doorway. And there's just something yeah. about that, that just, even if it wasn't a literal assault, there's some su- suggestion of uh, a voyeuristic the monster coming menace. out of the closet. Yes, yes. Do you think Fuck. that their incestuous relationship is an extension of that in some way? Is it something that that was forced? Again, I don't want to go into any detail here, but it, is this part of this kind of perversion of familial relationship that is extended out from the abuse that maybe both of them uh, suffered? Though obviously they didn't, they didn't come out of it with the same sort of mental health issues, but even though Ellen doesn't have as clearly defined mental issues as Sissy does, there's obviously still things that she is struggling with. I think on my reading, um, I think that uh, the incest represents or, or is, is part of uh, one of the themes in the film, which is like, the ways that they talk, like you pointed out, Adriana, at the dinner table, they're talking about the the various savage peoples of Africa. Right. Like it, it feels very much like that narrative around colonialism, which is like a bunch of brutal murderers talking about the savage people that they're brutally murdering. You know what I mean? Like the inhumanity that they have. I also think it's like that, you know, that their codependent relationship is much deeper than um just uh emotional manipulation that there's like a connection there i do wonder if there was abuse in the home if that connection was forged not as like uh you know uh that that it sort of happened as a response to yeah it's a trauma response yeah exactly like it's the needing that comfort and that connection you know yeah you know and and also like you know weird things happen when people are kids uh, and so who knows what, you know, is, is going on there. But I don't think the movie treats it. It reveals it in a way that is like surprising. But it, it you know, if we're going to have a moral scale, I think the movie's more horrified by the murdered yes. apes than it is by the fact For that they sure. occasionally make out. You know, like Which one I think, of these things I is think really bad. Is illustrated by how it's depicted. Like, yes. It's, the, I, the, the moment where we see the two sisters be intimate is very subtle and understated. Whereas the moment where we actually see Sissy kill Amafu is so fucking horrifying. Like, I mean, I don't think I can do justice to that scene describing it. I don't know if either of you want to take a crack at it, but it makes me so distressed. It's not just thinking about it. It's not just like a cutaway. Y'all like there's definitely shots of her hitting this orangutan with a chain. Now, and the, the chain, blood on the floor. Yeah. The chain that she uses in the shot was made of balsa wood. And yes. uh, the trainers had used it many times with the orangutan to no negative effect. But, you know, Carol Kane is acting and she's losing her shit. And she's going off with this chain and she's going off so crazy that the orangutan bit her on the foot. Bit her real, real fucking hard. And so that, you know, that's a cut. And she's freaking out about her hurt foot. And then the orangutan came over and was like really upset about having bit her on the foot. Like very much like, I, you know, w- what's going on? And, and the reality is like, uh, it's one thing to like 
have your trainer have this like weightless chain that they're sort of whipping towards you and you think it's a fun game. It's another thing to have Carol Kane in the moment absolutely losing her fucking shit. Of course, the, the orangutan was very scared, you know? Well, that shit, it, to me, I felt it in the in the movie. Like the shots of her. Now, there's a lot of shots where she's there's no orangutan there. She's clearly just like whipping at towards the camera. But every shot of her in that moment was fucking terrifying. It was it was horrifying to watch. It's it really pushes the movie for me back into the realm of of a horror movie. Like there are parts of this movie where I, I'm not even thinking like, oh, this is a horror film. But oh my god, it's it's really upsetting. I, I don't know, Doug. Doug th- this is a first time watch for you. Uh, were were you instead stoked on on seeing this beautiful orangutan <laughs> getting murdered or? Liam, the amount of empathy I have for human beings, it wavers from day to day and from person to person, right? But the amount of empathy I have for animals, and particularly monkeys, and particularly within monkeys, orangutans, is limitless, right? And when you see this innocent creature, and it's hard not to use that word innocent, because when you see it in the film, it's just being playful, right? It's, it's, It's acting... Very human-like in a lot of ways. When it's just standing there, it, it, it is impossible to separate the way that it's moving and acting from humanity. And with the understanding that it's a very simplistic way of a shared ancestor <laughs> way, way back. But the, the idea is it's so human-like in a lot of ways, but with that extra level of innocence to it, that when she murders this poor creature, I, I was feeling overwhelmed with emotion. Like, like I felt yeah. not just sad, but like... Like, like close to tears because it's such a waste, right? And this character, and also it feels like there's an inevitability to it. As soon as that, that orangutan is introduced, you know that it's not likely to end well. Yep. And it happens very quickly, right? It's introduced, there's a few scenes of them playing, and then the first time it does something that she doesn't like, we suddenly see like this, that, you know, that frantic, the, the, the whipping of the chain. And it's so, it takes so long as well, where it's just getting hit and hit and hit. And then suddenly it's on the ground and there's the pool of blood. It is horrific. And when I said at the beginning that this isn't a movie that I'm likely to, to revisit anytime soon, frankly, the death that comes after that sequence, whatever, I'll, I'll watch that all day. If David dies, I agree. Uh, I agree. No problem at all. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't want to see, that scene again i don't want to see it for a while because it's it's really affecting for me and i understand also that believe me i i live in a world of hypocrisy because i still eat meat in my life but it is something i feel a lot of guilt about every time that that i realize how moved i can be when i see violence towards animals in in a context in a movie even in a very you know obviously safe way that they portray in this movie it just reaffirms that guilt for me but that is not something i want to experience even if even if i know what it says about myself I mean, I do think you should probably stop eating orangutan because I think they're like endangered or something. It's pretty fucked up. Look, forbidden meat is the most delicious kind. (laughs) But, you know, yeah, I mean, that's I sort of hinted this at the beginning, but I'll say it again. I actually think a lot of this film for me is very rewatchable. I find it very engaging, except for this moment, which is and, and, and I don't just mean the actual murder. As you said, there is a lot of scenes that are building the tension where you know it's leading to this moment. 
even those scenes, because I know what it's leading to, are horrifying to me. Yeah. And even harder, you know, watching the special features and uh, Carol Kane talking about the deep connection she had to this fucking orangutan. Right. That they were like in real life friends. And, and, and you know, uh, the director talked about it too and how the orangutan didn't like other women but liked Carol Kane. And fuck. It's just like, uh, there's just a lot there. It's heavy. It hurts. It is. It, that 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 is a moment I think maybe that the film needs to sell something about how horrible the situation is, but it's it's not easy to watch. I I, yeah. I don't know that I can watch it again. If I watch this movie again, I might just skip it. Honestly, like it, that's the, just where I'm the at. The other the other aspect of it, which we haven't talked about yet, is that Lee Grant is on the other side of that cage, yeah. right. screaming yes. her head off. Yes. As all this is happening. Selling it. Selling Powerless it. to stop. Yeah, she is really selling it. Powerless to stop what's happening. Because, How? you know, the sissy Sorry. locked the cage, so she can't get in. And she's just screaming, you know, unlock the cage. Like, oh, my God. It's, it's so nerve-shredding and intense. And, yeah, like, I've seen this movie many times, and that scene does not get any easier to watch. Like... My God, the the idea that she—I mean, again, it, to me that is kind of like the turn—not only the turning point of the movie in a lot of ways, but the turning point of her enabling, which is that how can right. she continue to have this cage in this house that theoretically, you know, whether it's Sissy locking herself in it or Sissy locking her in it or locking someone else in it or locking another creature in it, the fact that she can do that and after already having experienced that helplessness of not being able to do something—that that to me, it's like that is what is going to be in her undoing. And as we find out, it it is. I mean, I think even the foundation that the cage is there because of the legacy of their father, yeah. who was like, I need to work from home, which means I need to put monkeys in a cage in my house so I can look at them. What? I, the, let's just clarify. There's, this is not useful to anyone's science. There's what is the science you're going to do in the cage in your house that you, that you need because you're but you're too sick to go to the lab like the entire idea that this is yet another thing left behind by their father that is now going to like rule their life it's it's yeah and um i'm glad you brought that up because another aspect of this movie is like one could argue that since i mean we were talking about like there obviously being something unseemly about death familial relationship like with her with her father like one could argue that the 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 monkeys in the cage are like a representation of like male aggression being like caged or punished by sissy and like eventually we have like an actual man in the cage and i think that just is like a a continuation of this thematic thread of like her father in in some way um like traumatizing her or abusing her and then she is sort of getting revenge <laughs> through the monkeys or and then I, I don't know like i haven't thought about i haven't thought that one through but there's something there i think there's definitely a projection thing going on with these monkeys that is uh, right, you know that that they are uh, so important to her, but also so easily disposed of. 
uh, and 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 such a focus of passionate violence. You know, it's there's a lot there. I mean, look, I, I already said it. I'm going to say it again, y'all. Whether you love this movie or aren't sure about this movie, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot that goes suggested or uh, or more than suggested that I think is is worth taking apart. Um, I do want to wrap us up here with uh, something I think we've already said uh, extensively, but I just want to affirm specifically and, and check in with each of you. Uh, I think Carol Kane is great in this. And as of right now, this is my favorite Carol Kane performance. Um, Same. I, I, you know, as, as we've talked about, me and Doug have a lot more movies to watch. So I'm, I'm open to any number of movies coming in and, and supplanting this in, in my number one. But right now, uh, it's number one, and and I want to be clear. Uh, the first time I saw this movie, I I didn't even like it that much, and yet uh, at the time I would have still said Carol Kane's fucking amazing in this movie. Um, now that I've seen it a few times and, and my appreciation for it has grown, um, uh, I still feel the same about her performance. That she just does something really amazing in the film, um, and and I hope we get another opportunity to see her reach these kinds of of heights in my mind doug how did you feel about carol kane in the film i think the mafu cage gives us a look into an alternate universe where carol kane's career took a much different turn than it than it ended up uh turning that i you get the impression when you listen to interviews with carol kane that being the world's greatest lover even though it didn't make a lot of impact that it proved to certain people that she could do certain kind of work. And that is likely what eventually led to her role on Taxi. And her role on Taxi would end up leading to a lot of the film work that she would get throughout the 80s and 90s and would kind of uh, determine how the public thought of her as an actress. Seeing her performance in The Mafu Cage, this isn't just a great performance. It's the kind of performance that if this film had gotten a lot of attention at the time, as opposed right. to having a lot of difficulty even getting uh, distribution in the United States, that... She could have won awards for this, should have gotten awards, should have gotten recognized Absolutely. for what she put into this. Because this isn't just a strong performance from a good actress. This is an incredible performance, a one-of-a-kind type performance. I don't know if I would say necessarily that when we get to the end of this project, whenever that will be, that this will be my favorite Carol Kane performance. But it is the one that I... Uh, it's the one that took me by surprise the most, and it's the one that up to this point I have the most respect for because there was nothing, as I said earlier, preparing us for what she showed that she could do in this movie. And it's one that I'm glad that people are revisiting and rediscovering in the form that it's now available in because when you watch The Mafu Cage, the thing that you will come away with is Carol Kane is a next-level performer, and that is something that is the reason that we have a podcast called Praising Kane in the first place. I agree. Uh, I think that's three of us who really feel great about this performance. I will say, um, obviously, I've I've grown on this movie over time. Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot going on here. We we already described the animal violence, uh, the the various like difficult things the movie deals with. Um, I, you know, I don't know that this movie is for everyone, 
But <laughs> I still think people should. I I don't know. I, I you know I'm I might regret this when someone you know sends us a message like I watched that movie and I hated it whatever. But I'd rather people see it because I just think if you're listening to this podcast, you care about Carol Kane as a as a as an actor, and you haven't gotten to see this yet, I really think it's worth your effort to to find it to 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 see it because I just think it is uh, gives us a much fuller picture. Uh, <laughs> well, Doug, what is this tweet that you've put into our chat? Into I just our, made uh, I made a meme uh, in devotion to my love of uh, the Mafu cage. So <laughs> many Mafus in it. Uh, Adriana, I'm so glad that you joined us for this episode to talk about the Mafu cage. Uh, I just really appreciate your input, and I'm so glad that you could be here. Thank you for being here, friend. Thanks for um, allowing me to be on the show. <laughs> allowing we were blessed <laughs> blessed to have you do you have do you have anything right now that you want to plug or have people check out mm, not really okay that's fine not everybody not everybody comes on a podcast to promote anything but i thought <laughs> oh, i better ask just in case adriana uh, what's a movie that people should go out and see right now or find a way oh to see good right question now? good question let me think okay Here's here's one. Like it's the first thing that popped into my head, so I'll just run with it. Um, Liam and I were both recently at the Exhumed Films twenty four hour Harathon. Yeah. Um, they showed two movies that were not film prints. Uh, the first was uh, a brand new restoration of a film called Death Game that Grindhouse Releasing is going to be putting out on Blu-ray. It was my first time seeing the movie. It completely blew me away uh it's another movie where there are queer women behaving badly um, <laughs> yep, yep, which yep. is totally my my jam and uh i it it seemed to me like it was likely an influence on michael hanukkah when he was making funny games Agreed. but um it's like a a, a a sort of home invasion film but with a twist um but like i I was really, really taken with it. Um, so I would say everybody look out for that Grindhouse releasing Blu-ray. Uh, or if you can find the movie through other means, I guess. But, like, really, this restoration was remarkable. Like, the the, the colors, the color palette of this film. Um, it, it reminded me a lot of Argento. Um, specifically, like... Suspiria like there was a lot of like reds and greens and blues uh and it was just a lot of fun it was like very nasty and mean-spirited um but like towards like white suburban men which <laughs> uh you know is it I, I I get a kick out of that but yeah there were a lot. There were a lot of sexy moments that then gave way to upsetting moments, and I really liked yes. that aspect of the yeah. film. Of like, oh, did you think that was hot? What about this motherfucker? Like that. It, it right, does right, that right. a lot, and I really appreciated it. It really keeps you on your toes. Yeah. So that's a good one. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, I, I haven't really seen too many new movies lately. I've been very busy. Uh, that was really like my first jaunt out to like. Uh, a theater in a while so yeah well i i i will second your recommendation because that was 
uh, I think my favorite film of the whole 25 hour uh, thought. So uh, people should check it out. It was mine too. Although I didn't stay for the whole thing, but I saw what film showed and like, I gotta say, I think that was the, the peak uh, I will say Patrick Still Lives was kind of crazy as well. Um, That's a good one. On our next episode, talk about, uh, it, you know, whiplash here, Doug, because <laughs> we, we, you know, that's, Slight left th- turn. <laughs> th- this is sort of the what it means to be doing a Carol Kane podcast. We're going from the mo- from the from the psychosexual uh, 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 hysteria of the Mafu cage to the much more horrific and depressing 1979's The Muppet Movie. From the Mafu movie to the Muppet movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I love the Muppet movie. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm worried about you know all the killing of apes in it, but I, I still think it's going to be really good. So I'm excited to cover it. Um, hopefully, people will join us back here. I, I know we're, we're asking a lot of you to go from one thing to the other, but I think you're gonna, I think you're gonna be glad you did. Uh, Doug, no, you don't actually have to listen to the episodes back to back, but uh, we you do. You'll miss Liam, details. The most I'm most excited about covering the Muppet movie. Because it means that we both get to do our impressions of the Muppets nope. when we start. No, oh boy. no sir. What? I want to hear your Kermit. No. I'm going to demand no. it. Uh, there is no such thing as my Kermit. That's not okay. A thing. Well, we'll see on the next episode of Praising Kane. I, I, what'll actually happen is we'll start talking about the fucking rainbow song mm-hmm. and I'll start crying on the goddamn episode. That's what's really going to happen, Doug. Aww. Anyways, to, on a more <laughs> positive note. Fuck. On a more positive <laughs> Stop it. On a more positive note. Knew your father right. <laughs> I hate you so much. Hey Doug. If people want yes. if people want to hear more of this podcast or you know any of them. Why the, the fuck would they podcasts, want to do that? <laughs> where what, what would they do? Where would they go? Where should where should they head? D- direct well. people. Well, the uh, the website that I found at cinepunks.com, you can go and check that out. <laughs> check out a whole variety of wonderful podcasts and writing over on that website. Uh, there was a ton of content that went up over October for the Cineween event. I, I think it's worthwhile to go back and really look at some of this amazing work from such a variety of great writers. Yeah. Lots of podcasts going up all the time over on that site. You can follow them uh, both at the website and, of course, on social media under the name Cinepunks, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, and including Twitter and Facebook. That is highly recommended. You can also follow Liam on Twitter, at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z. I'm on there as well, under, under Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y. But if you're just interested in Cinema Smorgasbord and some of the variety of podcasts under that umbrella, go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. We have podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, the career of Alejandro Jodorowsky, uh, the career of George Kennedy, and our recently launched George Kennedy is our co-pilot podcast, as well as many others. Check that out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on uh, social media, including Twitter, at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Thanks, Doug. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you're listening on iTunes, go ahead, you know, hey, rate, review, subscribe, do the whole deal. I, I don't know why it matters, but it matters. Uh, and do, do us a favor. Tell, tell your friend about the show. You know, say, hey, I was listening to uh, Cinema Smorgasbord. They were talking about uh, incest and murdering orangutans. <laughs> and I just think that's really going to really gonna sell it for, for everybody that you know. Liam, can I put something out in the world right before yeah, we finish do. today? Which is that. I think it's about time that we should start pursuing an opportunity to talk to Carol Kane. And, oh, man. Uh, oh, buddy. Want, oh, my I, God. 
I, I want that for you so badly. <laughs> I feel like we're reaching a stage of her career that it would be nice just to talk about where we're up to at this point. And knowing that she's out there and has been talking about some of her previous work, including Hester Street lately, I feel like if we put out into the world that this is something that we want, that maybe, uh, you know, we're going to, it's the secret, right? We're just going to visualize it in our brain and eventually it's going to happen. But I think we are going to make more of an effort to pursue that because she seems like a really delightful person. Let's see if we can, uh, we can talk to her. We have a podcast devoted to her. Yeah. I mean, here's here's the deal, right? She's only going to come on if people leave positive reviews on iTunes. So you're yeah. listening to this. Go leave a positive review on iTunes so we can get Carol Kane on the show. Also, if you run into her on the street, just bring it up to her. Just bring and, it up. Just bring it up. And when she says, praising what? What's a podcast? What the fuck are you talking about? Just educate her on what's yeah. happening here. Yeah. Adriana, thank you for being our guest. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Doug, thank you for uh, being you, I guess. I don't know. You suck, so I don't know why I said that. But, thank you. Uh, but we are really <laughs> glad that you- I had a great time. I'm so glad that you were on. It's so great. Uh, hey, y'all. Thanks for listening. Uh, until next time, good evening, good night.